SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 59 with guest Reza Rad. Our guest today is Reza Rad. Reza is an author, trainer, speaker, and senior DWNBI consultant. Has a bachelor's degree in computer engineering, more than 10 years' experience in databases, programming, and development, mostly on Microsoft technologies. He's a SQL Server MVP, and his writings on different aspects of technologies, particularly Microsoft BI, can be found on his blog that I'll put a link to in the show notes. He participates in a variety of community forums and is a moderator of the MSDN SQL Server forums, the leader of New Zealand BI Users Group, and speaks at a variety of SQL Server conferences, including SQL Saturday. So, welcome, Reza. Thank you. Thank you for your time, and uh, nice to be here. <laughs> Lovely. And so, what I'll get you to do is tell us, as I do with everyone, just how did you come to be involved with SQL Server in the first place? Um, well, it's uh, actually a long way. I uh, started more than 10 years ago, uh, mm-hmm. uh, actually uh, as a junior uh, Microsoft Visual Basic, uh, Visual Basic 6 developer, and I worked yep. with uh, SQL Server 7. And yeah, that, that was uh, the first time that I started to actually programming and working with databases. Uh, as a graduate uh, person uh, who comes from university. And after that, I uh, deal with uh, different projects and SQL Server 2000. And uh, and after that, I started VI stuff, data warehousing, and ETO, and then comes to actually my current stuff. Great. Also, yeah, I first came across you, I'd say, probably with PASS uh, and involvement with... uh, the MVP deep dives, I think, as well yeah, at yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. Actually, and, um, you was uh, writing in that book as well. <laughs> Indeed. And the other one uh, that I came across is, of course, uh, one of your books, uh, the SQL Server 2012 Integration Services Expert Cookbook as well, is uh, one that I uh, man- uh, have read in recent times, and so and that, that was a useful book as well. Mm. So what I thought I'd do is start off around some aspects of integration services that I don't often see people tackling all that much. And so the first one of those is extensibility, which I know you've done some work around. Yeah, yeah, actually. So I'd just love to get your thoughts on what parts of the extensibility model for integration services you've used and what you've learned. Uh, yeah, actually, um, you know, for example, you know that uh, society's 2012 comes with some new features like uh, SSIS catalog, which uh, provide um, useful uh, logging and information system for uh, deployment of packages and also uh, logging uh, different types of logging. Uh, 
which previously in SQL Server in Integration Service 2008 and also uh, 2008 R2, we did all of this stuff um, with some scripts and some uh, actually it, um, uh, execute SQL task. But in 2012, we have many of this stuff built in already. But uh, also this stuff needs uh, some more. Uh, uh, actually, extensibility features, for example, and in many of uh, SSI's projects, in many ETL projects, uh, and I actually feel that there are some requirements for a framework, for a SSIS framework for ETL packages to do, for example, uh, this kind of uh, task, for example, to provide reconciliation, for example, for uh, uh, for data warehouse and uh, SSIS packages. So, uh, yeah, I worked on this kind of framework, and I strongly recommend to others to use this kind of frameworks for the work. Mm. Yeah, I've often said to people, I think there's a maturity curve people go through in using integration services. And I, I think the first phase is where they tend to use everything out of the box as it's supplied. Uh, I think the next level, they tend to start to get involved in script tasks and things like that. Uh, I think the next level is probably where they start to then build components that drop into the toolbox yep. of integration services and prepackage their logic. And probably the last or the higher level of that is when they start programmatically using the object model uh, to create packages directly, like packages.create yeah, and yeah, right. yeah, package.task.add and so on, uh, and literally doing that in VB code or, or C-sharp code. And so what parts of those have you played around with? Uh, actually, I uh, played with uh, that part of uh, uh, programming, SSIS programming, which uh, contains, which is, for example, programming in uh, script component and script task, which are kind of actually basic SSIS programming, I yeah. assume, because the uh, component and task is ready. You just develop what you want in .NET, uh, C# or VB.NET. Mm. For example, if you want to apply some regular expression on a specific strings, you can do this in SSIS um, script component and bring some uh, create some output columns based on that. Uh, so these are actually kind of basic programming stuff in SSIS, but also, as you said, there is a, uh, capability of uh, working with um, SSIS component to create uh, tasks and also create uh, packages programmatically, which is very mm -hmm. uh, handy and useful. And uh, I actually use this part uh, in some of my projects to create, for example, uh, in some of my projects, I created some components and tasks to just uh, use them uh, from toolbox with drag and drop uh, to use this in um, different packages. And also, I used some uh, stuff to create packages from scratch with uh, actually uh, C-sharp uh, programming and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I think so. Actually, one of the things I like with the script components is they seem to be quite useful for prototyping things that you might 
create as components yourself anyway. So they're, they're not a bad starting point for that. But um, the, the problem, I think, with the script components, that's right, is you only have sort of, uh, what do they call it, copy and paste inheritance. Uh, yes. <laughs> so if, you, if you're going to reuse it, you need, you're just copying code from somewhere else. So yes, yes, that's right. I, I think it is desirable to try and repackage uh, those capabilities. Uh, a good example I saw of that recently, I had a client who was doing work with a progress data source mm -hmm. And they were using uh, basically an ODBC connection, but but then they were applying every time they did that, they were then applying a lot of rules like uh, progress. The, the driver, if it had a value that was null, it would actually send it out as a question mark, and they had to then write logic to and reinterpret that as the mm -hmm. value being null and so on. And it just struck me that you don't want to be doing that all the time. Yeah, you, you can want to build, build yourself a progress data source or something instead is a is a much better way to use the product. Yeah, yeah, that that's right. That that is actually why we create uh, uh, actually customs component and uh, this uh, sort of uh, components to uh, actually put some part of uh, logic, business logic, in a uh, component and task, and then in all packages that we want to uh, use this logic, we just drag and drop, and uh, when we want to change that logic, we just change it once, and all other packages use this logic again. Yeah, and so I suppose one of the concerns people have with this is that once you start packaging it up, you're going to package it as a DLL, but then there's the issue of what's involved in deployment. Um, you mean... Uh, uh, oh, I, I think one of the concerns people have is that, you know, as well as the package, they now have something else that needs to be shipped out as well. Mm -hmm. and, uh, actually, you mean uh, documentation parts of uh, packages? No, yeah. I was, no, I was meaning uh, if I create, for example, a new data source, yes. it's actually a DLL, and that DLL itself has to be deployed both to the developers doing development work and to the server where the, the package is going to run in the end as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, this is a requirement, but uh, uh, I think this uh, will not affect... Uh, uh, there is a requirement for deploying this DLL mm -hmm. with our packages, but uh, this is not actually uh, kind of... Uh, um, uh, tedious work or something that mm. will be hard to do actually when uh, you uh, actually use that DLL. Uh, the, the first time for deploying that DLL might be hard, but uh, yeah, yeah, this is a procedure that you can use it and it is very mm. easy. Yeah, I think that's, that's the thing people were a bit, uh, again, you, yeah, you have to understand they need it both when they're doing development and they need it in the runtime environment as well. Um, the other thing is that in 2012, the way you add it to the toolbox has changed as well. Yes, yes, because in 2008, it was completely different. Uh, not, not completely different, it's a uh, uh, different way. And in 2012, it's changed, and uh, you can use that way. Yeah, I think in 2008, they had the... Visual Studio normal toolbox that was used in the other languages, and you had to go in and sort of add the item to the toolbox, basically registering that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but in 2012, yeah, the, it is quite quite nice their way. You can now just drop it in the folder, yeah. and it automatically pops that into the toolbox. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, have you found any problems when you're building components, or anything you learned along the way that you found different in this version, or are mm. all pretty much the same? Uh, actually, I. 
found uh, mainly pretty much the same. The, uh, the main things in uh, 2012 was that we can use actually .NET Framework for uh, stuff, which yep. was very quite good. But in terms of um, deployment and uh, uh, putting that uh, script and that uh, component, uh, that task, it is uh, pretty much the same. Just few small changes. I'm not remembering mm. all of those, but yeah, I, I remember that few small changes was. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I that I wasn't aware of is that when you are in that debugging environment inside Visual Studio, of course. When you're in using the designer, of course, you're using a 32-bit application. Yeah. But if you're, by default, when you're on a 64-bit system, the minute you click that debug button, you're actually running the 64-bit version. Yeah. And the, yeah, and so that was a little bit tricky because yes, yes. what threw me is that the error message that came up uh, said something like, cannot uh, the, the call to perform upgrade method failed. And I thought, what you know and i was like looking at this method in the code and i looked and looked and looked and it's interesting it's just a subroutine it doesn't even return a value uh and i i put breakpoints in it and i could step right through the whole thing and i couldn't see any error at all and it was driving me absolutely crazy and i ended up sending the example off to matt mason in the uh SQL Server team and shout out to Matt, thank you. Uh, and he basically came back and said, "Ha, ah, hang on." And he pointed to the fact that that was actually a problem with the 64-bit registration, uh, where the, with, not with the 32. So it was really weird where it was registered properly for 32 bits. So you could go in, you could debug, you could set property. Sorry, you could set properties and do all that. But the minute you tried to debug it, it, it came up with this weird error, and it was just very peculiar the error that came up but it was just about making sure you had the 64-bit stuff registered as well and not just the 32. Yeah yeah that, that's right I, actually I remember that uh, yeah when, when you had this uh, mm. issue yeah you uh, asked for this and I've also tried to find out the solution but you found it yeah earlier actually. Yeah, well, yeah it's a little strange but listen so what sort of logic do you think is worth packaging up in your own components? Um, what do you mean actually by that? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of like how do you decide whether to do something in a script task or whether to do it in your own components or is it just the amount of times you'll reuse it? Uh, the, the, yeah, first uh, first thing is the amount of time that we want to reuse it. Uh, actually, I, I say that if I want to reuse it in uh, just only another package, it's worse to have this in a separate component and uh, the, uh, the other uh, things is that actually um, time frame of project for example in some project we do not have enough time to actually uh, consider developing a, a custom task or that sort of thing so for example in earlier phase of the project we might use script task for a specific logic, but uh, for example, in next phases, we change those script tasks with uh, custom component. But uh, yeah, amount of reuse uh, plays an important role. And also, um, uh, and this is actually based on uh, the logic. For example, if it is something that can be done in a uh, combination of built-in tasks, so I prefer to create a package for that 
rather than creating mm-hmm. uh, custom. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So you would prefer to create a child package out of built-in tasks, yeah, yeah, rather than lumping together. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That's, yeah, that's good. Yeah, but but this, um, this is for only when, for example, we can do that in uh, with yep. current built-in tasks. Yeah. Mm. Listen, another uh, one that appeared in 2012 is the DQS client component, the data quality services client component. Have you done anything serious with that as yet? Uh, yeah, actually it has. Uh, yeah, I used it uh, in a few projects. It has uh, uh, actually uh, problem. First, uh, let's say what it is doing. It's actually uh, connecting to uh, DQS engine, data quality engine in DQS mm-hmm. uh, 2012, and uh, use uh, data cleansing project. Uh, it actually create a data cleansing project and work with that and get a result and uh, yeah provide that result into a data stream. The problem with mm-hmm. this component is that it is a single threaded component. So if, oh, uh, so it's single-threaded. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So if you mm. have a, a big data stream, then you will face actually a performance issue. So and, and, and yeah, this is highly recommended. For example, if you have a big data stream, just split it with, uh, for example, conditional split task into mm-hmm. multiple DQS cleansing components, and then do that work. Ah, uh, okay. So you're saying in the package itself split it out into multiple streams that will hit different DQS component instances so that each of those, yeah. Yeah. And so, of course, the thing is that's part of the data flow task in the first place, and so the threading is controlled by the engine threads property on that that task. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, And uh, there is also another trick for that. Um, because uh, every time this DQS cleansing project will create a, a data quality project, a number of data quality projects will, will rise by the time. So uh, mm-hmm. there is a requirement to uh, actually clean this kind of project, unnecessary projects, in, yep. uh, yeah, in DQS. And uh, Microsoft actually published uh, a script uh, 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 yeah, we can simply search it. Uh, DQS uh, uh, cleansing uh, project remove script, something mm-hmm. like that, which actually remove uh, unnecessary project, which is quite handy. Yeah. Now, in terms of DQS, the the basic knowledge base that you build, the thing that you connect to. Um, so the, uh, the just running through the things you can do inside that. So the the first one of those is things like substitution of data, isn't it? Uh, yeah, actually you can um, you can create a knowledge base, and for that knowledge base, uh, in that knowledge base you can have different domains. In each domain, for example, you can say that, okay, for example, in this domain I have this kind of values. This value have kind of synonyms, for example. Um, yeah, so if yeah. I have a domain that deals with the names of sports. I mean, maybe somebody says football, yeah. and here we might have preferred soccer instead, yeah, or, something, yeah. or, the, or the other way around. So every time we see this, we could substitute a different value. Or uh, or another example I saw is uh, simply things like um, 
maybe here we have the AFL, but there's AFL, there's Auskick, there's a lot of different names for things that end up actually relating to the same sport. So, yeah, yeah those, those sort of substitutions on the fly are very useful. Yeah. Um, but other sorts of rules and things you can apply? Yeah, yeah, you can create also uh, business rules, uh, some uh, rules on, for example, um, um, some kind of cleansing rules. For example, uh, you have uh, um, gender information, uh, female or male, and also you have uh, marriage status, which is, for example, married or single or that sort of thing, and you want to get title based on these two. For example, you yep. say that if uh, uh, gender is female and it is married, then it is MRS. Or, uh, for example, if it is mis- uh, if it is uh, male, it will be Mister. And this uh, kind of uh, rules can be created uh, because it has a useful expression editor. You can create a, a, a specific rule with that expression for each domain. Mm. Also for composite domain. For example, this is the composite domain because. It yep. contains different domains and create a, a, a rule base. I, I suppose one of the questions, though, is that I'm sure would come to the mind of the developers and so on, is that they could easily do that sort of derived value. I mean, again, generally, I'd rather the user type that in, but but anyway, the or yep. pick it out of a list. But but regardless, if we were going to derive something like that out of the data. That could be done just routinely inside an integration services package. Um, But to me, I think the real value of DQS is that the person who's got the domain knowledge uh, can use a client tool which is completely separate to the person doing the development. Yeah, that's right. Because, yeah, that person or uh, data steward, as we uh, name it, that data steward can uh, use that DQS studio or data quality client and uh, view actually different uh, kind of uh, definitions, create synonyms and change that knowledge base as desired. And then that uh, DQS component in SSIS can use that knowledge base yeah. Yeah, to me, I, I think that's the real value because I think I often find people seem confused because they go, I could do most of these things quite easily inside an integration services package, but that's not the point. The point is you don't want to be the one doing that. Yeah. You you want to hook it up to a knowledge base and somebody has a client tool who understands the business stuff who who actually does the editing of the knowledge base instead of you. Yeah, that's right, because the knowledge base is actually uh, provided by business and data start from the business is actually the one who will do that. Mm. And yeah, SSI's developer just use that knowledge base with that DQS component. and Yeah, yeah and it also means that the domain owner uh, can also do all these updates and things without having to come back and get something changed, and uh, that, that's that's nice from that point of view. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's right. And uh, also, mm. the, the part of data quality which doesn't actually interact with SSIS is a matching project. A matching mm-hmm. project is actually interact with master data services, not with SSIS. But yes. uh, yeah, and the data start also can use that matching project directly from DQS Studio to uh, apply some fuzzy matching uh, on data, for example, to see how these data are similar to each other and this kind of fuzzy stuff. Also, this can be applied to uh, data before loading these into master data services through 
MDS add-in in Excel. Hmm. Now, uh, another component that is an interesting one, do you tend to make use of the fuzzy lookups at all? Uh, yeah, Have yeah. you found them, found them useful or not? Yeah, yeah they are uh, very useful, those fuzzy components, uh, fuzzy lookup and fuzzy grouping. Uh, actually, uh, these are... So maybe, yeah. maybe for those that haven't looked at like fuzzy lookups, if maybe just spend a moment and just explain what they're there for. So Yeah, for example, that fuzzy lookup actually looks for uh, those um, um, information in uh, based on the similarity threshold of those uh, uh, values with our uh, reference table. For example, we have a reference table and we have some data incoming. This incoming data will be checked in the similarity threshold, not the exact similarity. The exact similarity is what actually look up the actual lookup component. Do, do. That's right. Yeah, the lookup component is the, yeah. I want an exact match. And so this is just, yeah. I want a, a match, but I'm going to determine how similar it is. Yes. I suppose the, the nice thing about that is you can tune that over time if you think it's too many false or negative uh, yes, yes. Re results coming out of it, yeah. Yeah, based on a number of results, you can adjust the threshold and you can also, um, and uh, yeah, there are some tricks to use it. For example, uh, the fuzzy component is also, uh, 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 this also affects performance of a package because it's, uh, yeah, it's really time consuming. Uh, but for example, we can first apply the lookup component to see, for yep. example, how much exact match we have, and then uh, pass the uh, non-match stuff to fuzzy lookup and that sort of thing. And then after the time, we adjust threshold and we yeah, create a better knowledge base for our reference table, that sort of thing. Yeah, no, that's great. The, um, and so I think now, in terms of the changes, we started to mention before as well that Integration Services now has its own database, but one of the nice aspects of that is that there's a whole series of views and stored procedures, the catalog views, yes. that are a programming interface directly to Integration Services from T-SQL. Yes, yes. For example, uh, yeah, uh, they are quite handy. That actually SSIS catalog database is very handy for development and, and not for development, for actually deployment, for logging information, and for uh, uh, actually storing environment variables. For example, is um, uh, some stored procedure and some uh, tables for that environment variable. And yeah, these are all the stuff that uh, we actually didn't had in previous versions of SSIS, but in current version, all of these tables and the stored procedures are coming to help to uh, create a, a better actually a configuration to better logging system. For example, in 2008, I remember that uh, uh, we could do actually multiple configuration with XML configuration files, but this environment variables are doing much better. We can simply mm -hmm. create an environment variable, define uh, different variables with values, map those values with you know, or uh, package parameters, and all of these uh, actually happens in a backend uh, database in SSIS catalog. We can do all of these stuff with uh, some stored procedure. 
So, for example, mm-hmm. I can create a, a TCL uh, script, just to do all of this stuff for deployment and pass it to, uh, for example, DBA to just run this. So this is much uh, better for uh, actually deployment, logging, and this kind of. Mm. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. That's great. And so listen, uh, I was also going to ask you, um, BIDS Helper, B-I-D-S Helper, has also been updated for the current version. Uh, Which things in that do you find useful for integration services work? Uh, Actually, I've used this uh, for kind of uh, documentation. It provides uh, good Mm -hmm. documentation. So, and, and yeah, and uh, yeah, I used it f- from 2008, and then it's uh, the new version of this, which compatible with 2012, actually. The mm. Floyd, yeah, I used it again. It has also some other features. Uh, in previously, it had some features, I think, for version controlling. I actually didn't use that. Kind of yeah, I think they had basically uh, some work that they'd done towards a smart comparison of packages, and mm. and that's something that was I think horrible in earlier versions. The, yeah. Uh, even though a package is XML, the structure of the XML was just completely horrible, and uh, I think it's one of the very big step forwards in 2012 is that yeah, the way they've structured the XML in the package files now. Yeah, yeah, the structure of XML actually completely changed. Previously, it was in 2008, and in 2008 or two, it was uh, based on, uh, actually, each uh, property was kind of the attribute value, but uh, in 2012, it's uh, well XML structured. Both both are XML, but uh, this 2012 version are much better uh, structured. We have different mm. elements, different attributes in XML for each property, each component has, yeah. which make it... Yeah, I like, I, I like the way they're all now nicely nested uh, yeah. inside, which is it didn't have a very good structure before. Uh, they also, all the attributes and uh, things they list in alphabetical order, even though they're case sensitive alphabetical order but at least at least they're all in order yeah and they they've done away with all the lineage ids which were yeah. horrible they just store absolute paths to everything uh and the other big one i think is just the fact they only store values if they're not the default value so that makes the packages much smaller in, in, in terms of the content. Yeah. Uh, and they've taken that layout information and pushed that into a C data section at the end. So And it's discardable. So you could just compare only uh, up until you hit that C data section if you're comparing two packages. Yeah. Now just 
XML comparison tools do a great job of finding what's different, where before it was just, yeah, it was a lost cause trying to do that. Yeah, yeah. And also, uh, yeah, uh, with all of this stuff also, uh, yeah, copying uh, something from a package and paste into another package based on this, based on that old structure was hard, but in this uh, new structure, it is much easier to do this. Mm. Yeah, indeed. And actually, another one I do remember um, that was in Bids Helper too that I, I used in the previous one. Uh, there was an option in there to reset the GUIDs, uh, the uh, the ID for the packages as well, because mm. uh, internally they've got a GUID. And I did come across a bug uh, that was at one of my uh, client sites where they had duplicated packages, but they still had the same ID, the same internal ID. And what was really scary is that uh, when one package was running, it was accessing the memory of the other package's variables in memory. Yep. Um, <laughs> when they were running at the same time, it's like, ah, that's rip. And that sort of thing is so hard to debug. You know, that's just uh, crazy hard to debug. I remember yeah, a friend, yeah. Neil, Neil uh, who was sort of debugging that. And, uh, yeah, I think that, that sort of thing is, like, completely horrible. So um, those sort of, yeah, it's always really important if they're duplicating and just like copying a package to make sure it has different internal IDs, and yeah. again, Bits Helper does does that by default. Yeah, it yeah. has an option there for that. Yeah, there, this is a great option in Bits Helper, but yes. Mm. No, that's good. And listen, so in terms of getting reasonable performance out of integration services packages. Mm. Um, are there particular things that you try and do? I remember in uh, your book you were sort of mentioning uh, a number of things you try and do. So, like, uh, I suppose yeah. the data flow is where most of the action happens. So, yeah. Uh, so I suppose the first thing you listed was optimizing queries. So I suppose that makes sense that the queries that it's executing need to be running as well as they possibly can. Yeah. Um, but I think also probably not, Returning too much data is probably the yeah. For example, uh, just for example, selecting those columns which are uh, which we want to use. For example, not select a star or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So just uh, columns that we want to use, and uh, actually um, and, uh, using, for example, uh, components like derived column uh, transformation, or for example. Uh, uh, just this kind of expression uh, transformation or this kind of row by row transformation are, uh, uh, does not affect anything. But uh, for example, we have components like sort component. Uh, this yeah. sort component is actually a, perf uh, a performance consuming and uh, this needs all information to be loaded and stop and uh, reorder all of this and then send it to uh, the next transformation. So this kind of mm -hmm. transformation also needs to be used carefully. For example, if we can do that sort of that sort of stuff in uh, source script, this would be uh, would perform much better rather than yeah. sort component. And uh, yeah, using for example components like uh, fuzzy components uh, again carefully. For example, if you want to do that, first do for example lookup component to actually narrow that data stream, uh, much mm. narrower that data. Yeah, stream. you're saying do the initial search in case it's right, yeah. and then only only if it's not right, then consider doing a fuzzy because yeah, that gets rid of all the basic ones to start with. Yeah, yeah, that's right. 
Um, yeah, no, that's good. And I suppose the other thing with lookups too is that the, you can control the query that's used against the database for the lookups as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For example, it, yeah, it is uh, also uh, yeah for lookups we can do many things actually. Uh, for lookups we can do a lookup based on, uh, for example, full cache, partial cache, or this kind of information. For example, if uh, we have a big, uh, if we have a a small reference table or a small lookup table, so we can use the full cache because it's load everything. In Actually, yeah. uh, I should just take you back one second. Yeah, so for those not familiar with that, yeah, there are three caching options that you get yes. inside those lookup components. So we should go through each one of them. So full cache, um, the action is to go off and load all the data from the target. Yes. Before the component starts. And so I often see symptoms where that's been used where it shouldn't be, where a package runs until it gets to that point and then it sits there for ages and people think, what is this doing? And of course it's going and loading all the data yeah, from the... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, actually it is, uh, that full cache is good for small uh, reference tables but not for big mm -hmm. uh, reference tables. When we have a big reference table, yeah, we, uh, if we use that full cache, we should wait uh, a long time to load everything in memory, and it's actually consume all memory, and then yeah. uh, other stuff will run. Uh, yeah, but we can use, for example, partial cache for this, or even uh, no cache. And so yeah, that's the next option. Just says partial cache ends or partial cache, and so maybe describe what that does? Uh, yeah, that partial cache, actually we can um, uh, set the cache size, for example, in advanced tab of that uh, component, we can say that, okay, my cache size is this, so load uh, this partially, and uh, yeah, just check this uh, partially with uh, uh, that incoming data partially, and check is it in this uh, reference table or not. Mm. Yeah. And of course, the third option is no cache at all. Yeah, yeah. this no cache is uh, actually time consuming for each incoming uh, data role because it goes back to SQL Server or uh, any underlying database and uh, search for that value and then come back again uh, for the uh, go for the next record. This is good when we have low number of incoming records and big uh, number of records in reference table, very big number of records. Yeah, I, I, I normally, uh, the advice I normally give people on that one is it's also a decision as to whether you're likely to see the same row again as well. Yeah. So if, if I'm looking up a row and I'm never going to look it up again, it's completely pointless chewing up memory and things caching those those rows. Yeah. Yeah, and and, uh, and one thing which is quite tricky in lookup component is that, for example, when we have uh, incoming data rows that have uh, duplicate records, for example, and we want to check that, for example, this record uh, uh, is this record exist in destination in this reference table or not? Um, when we use, for example, that full cache, it's checked this is not exist. It passes it on. And the next record comes. The next record does not exist again. This uh, goes on, so we will have duplicate entries with this because it's uh, loaded everything into cache first, mm. and yeah, it doesn't. And it did, 
didn't find the duplicate. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's one that I've often fallen foul of myself. Is I, I look, you think in terms of single row logic, and you, yeah, you perform the lookup. The not the value's not there, but what you're missing is the fact that you've got two copies of that in the incoming data, and you're yeah, trying to put in something right, yeah. that's got to be unique. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, that that can be that can be a real challenge with that yeah, as well. Yeah, the practice for um, that one is actually to check is this a duplicate before sending this to lookup. Yeah, that that sort of solution. Actually, in in some of those cases, what's your thoughts about alternately pushing that into a staging table and using a merge statement in yeah, TC? Yeah, yeah, that that also yeah that is also another solution for doing that. Uh, yeah, in mm. in data warehousing stuff, all uh, yeah, always I uh, not me uh, actually. All of um, data warehousing experts uh, saying that uh, you should load information into a staging table, even if you can do all of this uh, stuff in SSIS packages. Just first load mm -hmm. in staging table to at least keep a, a staging uh, record of everything. This is uh, good for yep. reconciliation process, for lineage uh, uh, process. And then uh, do a transform package uh, that actually bring that um, staging information and uh, check it with uh, existing fact or dimension structure and apply transformation and load it back in. And so, I sub in fact, yeah, I completely agree with that. I. Uh, one of the things I'm a big fan of is I tend to do more, I suppose uh, they'd say ELT rather than ETL. So I, I like sort of extract, load, and then transform yes. before I then load again. And uh, and I think a large part of that is I like to have the minimal impact I possibly can on the source system. Yes. Uh, and I want to, if anything's going to fall over, I don't want it doing so on the way from the source system to, to where it's going, I, I want it. I want to get it in with the least possible constraints, and then check the data and fix it in in bulk, uh, preferably. And I have a strong preference again for doing the majority of that in T-SQL, uh, because yeah. again, if you look at the lookups, if I have to look up uh, ten dimensions for a fact or something, I mean, I'd much rather bring the facts into a staging table and just do one big update statement with you know yeah, 10 yeah. left joins or yeah, something that's, that's going to right yes yeah. yeah it's going to completely outperform the other options anyway yeah so. yeah for example yeah, yeah so. we have this kind of stuff in yeah in uh, actually uh, in uh, data warehouse uh, big challenges for example for incremental load we can use exercise components for incremental load but it can be also uh, Easier with helping TCL statements, or uh, yeah, or different kind of uh, stuff. For example, uh, that slowly changing dimension, we can do this with uh, current slowly changing dimension component, but it can be also uh, made easier with uh, TCL scripts. So yeah, there are some best practices that uh, yeah, this is actually why I. I'm saying that uh, using a framework for SSIS packages is always recommended. For example, if we use this method as a slowly changing uh, for a slowly changing dimension, then we can use this as a framework for all of our packages. That's it. Mm. Yeah, that, that's, it's a good point. Yeah, I probably tend to err on the side of 
way more T-SQL being used in my packages than what I see typically around the town. But uh, again, I find it makes a big difference to the performance of the packages as well. So yeah, yeah, this this actually uh, depends. Uh, yeah, this sometimes are depends on uh, the env- uh, your environment as well. For example, if you have a, mm. a SSI server and you have a, a source uh, database uh, server and destination database server, then that SSI server will consume memory for loading data into SSIS memory and that sort of thing. But if you do not want to use that uh, SSIS uh, server memory or that sort of thing, or you have that SSIS uh, server part of one of those source or destination, then uh, yeah, some TCQL statement might, um, yeah, might work much mm. better. Yeah. yeah. You also noted um, in the book, I remember, avoiding unnecessary sorting in the in the data flow. And one of the things I've come across lately is that people have tried to use like a merge join component and yes. it requires sorted input. And so what they've done is just put a sort in front of it even though the data was already sorted. And it's, yeah, I think it's really important to realize that there are those options uh, yeah. in the advanced edit from the data source where you can indicate that this data is already sorted. Yeah, yeah, that that option is quite handy actually. Yeah, uh, mm. yeah, this is much better to sort this information in, um, I mean, TSQL or it is, uh, um, source actually SQL escaped order by something. This works mm. perform much better than source component. And after that, we just need to say to SSIS that uh, okay, this is sorted based on this column. Just mention that yeah. this is sorted and do not use that sort component here that heavily actually performance. Mm. Yeah. Look, and another thing is um, maybe experiences you've had around trying to do incremental data loads. So, I mean, everybody eventually gets to a point, most of the time anyway, where yep. uh, they, they need to not keep getting all the data, where they need to just incrementally have it come in. And what have you found works and doesn't work for you? Uh, actually, there are uh, some best practices for this kind of incremental load. I think Andy Leonard uh, yeah, did some articles about how to do uh, incremental load, that sort of stuff, uh, in mm. SSIS packages. Uh, yeah, there are different options. For example, one option is actually to keep uh, in, um, actually tracking information in a table. For example, say that uh, in this table we have uh, uh, this uh, staging table loaded up to this state, and yep. uh, yeah, each, uh, in each ETL run, each, each, uh, in each SSIS job run, we check that date and bring information from that date again. Yeah, even that's tricky though, right? So this is this is a good example where one of the things I come across all the time is people have source tables that have like a last modified date in yeah. them or something like that. And it seems obvious that you would just keep a track of where you're up to, ask for everything since that, and then get the biggest value that you just got and use that as the starting point next time. Yeah, yeah, that's but, right. But the... But I run into trouble with this sort of thing all the time when when this occurs. And the first time I was really bitten by that, it was a DB2 source system. And what was happening is they were using a trigger to set the last modified date. And what would happen is the trigger would fire when they updated the record, 
but it, or the row, but it was some short time later that it would then finish running the trigger. But when it finished running it, it set the date to the time the trigger started running. Oh. And so, so the problem with that is that what you had is just, you know, they were loading millions of rows a day, but then all of a sudden, every now and then, two or three rows in a day wouldn't wouldn't work properly. And it was just that small time frame where that was a problem. Now, in the end, I think the solution for those, I've often, I often say to people in classes, I say, look, how would you deal with this sort of scenario? Um, and I think it's really easy to just say, look, I'm just going to use a last modified date. But the thing you have to be so sure about is how that date gets set. Yeah, because is that a date that comes from the application and has taken some time to then get into the database? Or is that, you know, some proc layer or something? And even that, like how long could that run before that, you know, when do they work out the value and then when do they update the value? It might not be the same time. Yeah, and so yeah, that's I think there's quite a bit you've got to be careful with that. Now, in the case of something that's updated by a trigger, um, the thing that I found that was a good solution for that was never to ask for everything right up to the last moment. Mm. The trick is always to ask for everything up until 30 seconds ago yeah, yeah. or something like that and then just keep doing that. And that way, whatever the hopefully, whatever the period of the trigger is, you need something wider than that that you only ever ask for up to that point and then you, then you tend not to miss things. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and also, uh, yeah, in... And in new version of SSIS, there is a uh, task that helps uh, a bit in this kind of solutions, which is... Yeah, it's the change data capture yeah, control yeah. and tasks. Yeah, that, yeah, that change have, data capture is also good. Have you had a look at how that's implemented, though? Because it, it's been on my list of things to go and have a look at. But the, what makes me nervous is that w when I had a look previously at the examples in Books Online, um, change data capture works with log sequence numbers, uh, reading out of the transaction log, yeah. which are a, they're a binary 10. They're a bit ugly to work with. And what they kept doing in the examples is they kept flipping that and converting that back to an actual date and time and then working with that and kept on going backwards and forwards. And I, I just think with the speed at which things happen in a log, I'm I'm not so comfortable with doing it that way. I I think you'd be much better off to work with the actual log sequence numbers mm -hmm. and just make sure you have every sequence number that that you're meant to have. Um and I just I haven't looked at the components yet the commands they're issuing under the covers to find out how they're actually doing it. Yeah, that that's actually right. Yeah, I I read I read this kind of information also in uh, the MSDN uh, uh, actually articles and that sort of thing. I've worked and played with that CDC and uh, that uh, kind of components. It can be uh, yeah better with some takes and uh, actually um, best practices. But yeah, this is actually a new component, so it's still needs uh, some kind of improvement. But it is quite handy, so it is. Uh, good to use it and actually use some best practices for this. 
Yeah, look, I, I think the concept's great. I mean, they added change data capture in 2008. It never, it didn't ever feel to me like it was totally finished, that part mm -hmm. of the product, though. It's, uh, um, I mean, for a start, they didn't have DDL statements, so there was no create, alter, drop, any of those things. It's all just system-stored procedures. And I talked to the guys in that group, and they told me they would have liked DDL, but they just couldn't make it happen in time. Um, but the other thing is that I find that when you have... Uh, a change in source database schema and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, those sort of scenarios you need to work through very carefully. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. To, to, to make sure what's going to happen. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, because these are very sensitive based on those uh, kind of metadata structure change and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think one thing that is really good about it though is the way that it it's reading from the transaction log instead of picking up the changes as they occur in the database. And so that takes the load off the process that's causing the change in the first place. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm. And so, yeah, I, th I think that is an interesting component. Listen, another one I want to ask your thoughts on is the different types of destinations. Uh, I often get asked questions about, well, uh, you know, you look here and there's an OLEDB one and an ADO.NET one yeah. and an ODBC one, and they go, okay, so which one should I be using? Yeah, uh, this actually, uh, I think, um, depends on the, um, the data destination, I mean, the destination type. For example, if we use... And SQL Server uh, and as a destination. Also, we have two kind of destination for SQL Server: SQL Server destination and also OLEDB destination, which are uh, quite different. SQL Server destination is very good in terms of performance, uh, but uh, the problem with that is that it only works with the local instance of. SQL Server? Yeah. yeah. I, I think that has a terrible name. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that's so I always say to people, uh, when you're first doing this, it seems obvious that if you're going to SQL Server, you'd use the SQL Server destination. <laughs> yes, uh, that's right. And I, can be, I can understand why people think that would be the right choice. But, but yeah, it uses that in-memory provider, and that means that that's cool right up until you want to run the package on a different machine to the server. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you will you will find lots of actually questions in MSDM forums about this SQL Server destination because of this kind of error that they face when a user when developer work with it. So yeah, if if we have that kind of SQL Server instance, local instance, then using that SQL Server destination is good. If we do not have that, OLEDB uh, destination is uh, very good for every actually. Um, database uh, engine provider that we can use OLEDB. For example, with Oracle, we, uh, uh, we can use OLEDB. With uh, some databases, we can use. But for example, with MySQL, I I'm not sure uh, right now, but previously when I worked with MySQL, there was no OLEDB provider for MySQL. So I actually uh, forced to use, for example, ODBC provider or ADO.NET provider for this. These kind of providers are a bit slower than uh, OLEDB. So uh, yeah, there this, this are kind of difference between the connector, data connector type of uh, actually uh, connection between uh, this SSI component to that database engine. 
which makes yeah, I find the I think the ADO.net one, as you say, is a slower destination. The um, the thing that it's kind of nice about that, of course, is you get to use named parameters uh, inside the destination instead of uh, the OLEDB one. You've just got a whole series of question marks uh, as, yeah. as placeholders, and I find that makes the Queries a lot harder to read and so on and and uh, but but yeah for performance most people tend to use the LADB ones yeah, uh, and of course the SQL Server team themselves though seem to be heavily invested in moving to ODBC in the future so uh, I have you know, I've got a feeling down the track that's probably where we're going to end up being um, but the other thing I find that people tend to get wrong with those. OLEDB destination is when they first bring it out, if they connect it to a table, it's the fact that the defaults are things like table lock and so on as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, yeah, we can use that. Uh, um, you mean that fast load information? Yeah, right? so the, the, the default often when people pick a table is the option that does a fast load to the table, yeah, and, yeah. Which, which is good. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's which good is and very fast. Good, yeah. But only if no one else is trying to use the data at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this this needs to be used actually carefully. Yeah, the fast load is very good in terms of performance, but yeah, you need to think about when to use it, how to use it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so, look, are there any uh, guidance things that you have around the control flow? Anything that you think you see people often do wrong? Uh, in control flow, you mean kind of best practices in control? Oh, just just anything you you see people do that you wish they would do differently? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, there are uh, multiple stuff. For example, if I remember one of them, one of them was, for example, um, you know, in previous versions of SSIS, there was no expression task. So, mm -hmm. for example, uh, for example, if a developer wants to create a variable which is based, which is coming based on an expression, it just yep. uh, uh, put that expression in expression properties of that variable and change the evaluate as expression as true. So mm -hmm. this means that that's and so we, we don't need to use a script task to do yeah 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 or or using a script task. And yep. If we use that uh, evaluate as expression variable stuff, this means that that variable will be resolved by that, ex by that expression every time that we refer that variable. So, for mm -hmm. example, if we refer that variable in the start of package, uh, in the starting of package, which is, for example, at 5 o'clock, 5 a.m., uh, this uh, resolves something else, but if we do same in uh, at the end of package, this resolves something else, which is, for example, 5.30 or 6. Uh, mm -hmm. So this, uh, yeah, uh, uh, this uh, actually leads to uh, write some scripts in a script task, as you said, for example, load that um, value into variable with that script, or with new SSIS 2012, there's an expression task, which we put that expression task uh, in a, uh, yeah, every place that we put this, this will be the location that uh, variable will be resolved by that expression. So this means that this mm. will be consistent, and we can use it for logging and everything. Yeah. Listen, that's great, uh, Risa. And listen, just before we finish up, I suppose, is there where will people see you coming up uh, or see or hear from you? Um, actually, uh, and my blog is 
uh, yeah, the way that I'm connected. Yeah, I'll people. put a link. I'll put a link to the blog. Yeah, yeah and some speaking sessions, for example, uh, yeah, for uh, 25 of uh, this month, I'm coming to Sydney, I think. Ah, yeah. very good. Yeah, for SQL Saturday. Uh, for the SQL Saturday in Sydney. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Excellent. yeah, just um, and I intend to attend at this year SQL Pass as well. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure Excellent. if you are going there. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm still undecided at the moment. Actually, I, I every year that I cannot be there, I'm so sad if I can't be there. I, <laughs> I would love, yeah. I love being at the Main Pass Summit if I can. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this kind of speaking uh, sessions, and also yeah, they can. Uh, drop an email to me or yeah this kind of uh, uh, actually uh, ways that they can contact me yeah i, I will uh, also msdm forums i uh, yeah uh, partially on the forums answering yep on the forums answering questions that's yeah, great yeah. and i'll also put a link to the book you had uh, for integration services yeah, as well. yeah thank you Terrific. Well, listen, thank you so very much for your time today, Rosa, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for your time.